and welcome to the New Life Fellowship Podcast. New Life Fellowship is a community of grace in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. Our goal is to teach and share and experience the life of Jesus Christ together. You're about to listen to a message from one of our meetings. Please make sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca. Without further ado, let's listen in. Well, um, this is the time of year where everyone kind of takes a look back, right? They, uh, I'm a sports fan. I don't know if you knew that or not yet, uh, but I love, you know, the top plays of the year, top misplays of the year, uh, highlights, all that stuff. And, uh, but bigger than that, a lot of people use this time as sort of a, a chance to kind of reflect on their life. Where are they? Where do they hope to be? Uh, what do they want to see different and change? What dreams do they have? And, and so this is often the time where, where people make different resolutions, different, different changes they hope to make this year. If, uh, if you're looking for some New Year's resolutions, I've got some. Feel free to, to take these on. I don't know what's, what's making the noise. Anyways, uh, so here's one resolution. Uh, drink one less cup of coffee a year. Right? That's, uh, that's a simple one. Another one is uh, make a vow not to waste money on a gym membership. That's, uh, I'm doing that. Um, uh, here's one for some of you. I won't name any names. Uh, but vow to pick less fights on the internet. Ooh, yeah. Uh, I like this one. Uh, especially, I think this is going to be Sue's uh, uh, New Year's resolution. Uh Vow to communicate online only through memes and gifts. I think, I think that would be fantastic. Uh, and then this one here, uh, make a vow to finish all of the projects you began but abandoned during the first lockdown. Right? I know, that's too much to do in a year. All right. Well, what I want to do today, what I want to do this morning, is sort of take a moment and, and pause and reflect. And, and what I mean by that is to reflect on the larger story. I think sometimes it's what happens, what we do is we get fixated on our own story. We get fixated on our own life. And the reality is that we're, our part, our life is part of a much bigger story. It's part of God's story. And, and when we get wrapped up in our own lives and we get wrapped up in our own stories, then some things start to happen. We, we start to become petty or selfish. Uh, because it's all about me now. I think I ought to be the star of the show. Or we end up taking ourselves too seriously, uh, where we, we major in the minor stuff and we minor in the major stuff. And, and because it's me being the center of the story, we're often left dissatisfied, it, that it's never enough. It's never big enough. And so we're always looking for more, always searching for more, always needing more. And no matter what happens, because you, you end up being the author of your own story at that point, you're always left empty. It's, it never quite works out the way you hope. So this morning, what I'm hoping we can do is take that moment to pause and reflect on the larger story and rediscover some of the majesty of what God's doing. Because really, the story you and I are, are part of is, is a story that's been going on since before the foundations of the world. And it's all connected. It's all integrated. And so our story connects to Adam, uh, Adam's story and, and Abram's story that we're studying right now. And so that's where we're hoping to, to see uh, how it connects. So with that, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis 15 as I, as I pray. 
Lord Jesus, we're, we're so thrilled to know that you're here. Because you're here, there's freedom. As we sang this morning, there's freedom where the, where the spirit of the Lord is. And so we have freedom to experience life in you. We have freedom to live. We have freedom to worship you. And so right now, Lord Jesus, I call upon your name. I call upon your power. May, may what you deliver this morning be words of life. May we be awestruck. Even though maybe we've heard this before, may we be blown away by the beauty and the power of your word and of your life. In your name we pray, amen. Well, when we began studying in Genesis 15 a number of weeks ago, we started off, before we even got into the chapter, we started off with talking about covenants, right? This concept of covenant. And, and the nature of covenant is much more than a contract, we said. A contract often is, is negated or, or broken and so forth, whereas a covenant is an unbreakable oath. Uh, an unbreakable oath where two parties make promises to one another. And, and it's a solemn promise. Often, you know, in the most serious of covenants, it's a promise that if you break it will lead to your death, either by the person who you broke the covenant towards or maybe even your own family because of this honor you would bring to your family for breaking that covenant. And so it's that, it's that seriousness of, of a deal here. And we, we use different examples. We use the illustration of, of two tribes coming together and tribe A and tribe B making a covenant. And now what happens is they share their resources. What belongs to tribe A belongs to tribe B and what belongs to tribe B belongs to tribe A. And really they become one. And, and that's really what we're seeing in, in marriage. And, and so there's lots of ceremonies in fact that surround these covenants. An example, that would be in Exodus 24. If you're ever reading through Exodus 24, you see this ceremony where, where uh, the, the law or the covenant is read to all the parties and everyone says, yes, I vow, I swear, I agree. And then they would often celebrate with a meal. And we see that in Exodus 24 where God invited, think about this, God invited the elders of Israel up onto Mount Sinai. And that's where the covenant was read and they took a meal together. God and the elders, amazing. And that's what happened. And so there's all kinds of ceremonies that are often are connected to covenants. We do this today with the rituals, particularly around weddings, right? I mean, you think about it. When you, when you see the people, they walk in, you know, at a certain order, the processional. And then there's the, the reading of the vows and saying, I do, and, and uh, asking for any objections, kissing the bride and, and, and sharing a meal often, or even just cutting a cake. All of these rituals that we practice are really tied back to this covenant. And so there's a, there's a certain rituals that all covenants often have. But if you remember then, what we looked at was one kind of covenant in particular. We looked at threshold covenants. And that threshold covenant, how it specifically relates back to the story of Exodus and the children of Israel. So in Exodus 12, we saw there are two key Hebrew words. Anyone remember what the two Hebrew words were? Pesach and Abar. And they're both translated Passover, but they're very different in meaning, right? Abar means to pass over physically. It's a spatial distance. And he was, God was talking about how the angel of death, the angel of destruction was going to pass over, pass through Egypt physically. But that God himself, anyone who put blood on the doorpost and on the lentil, that, that God would pasak, he would pass over the threshold and enter into the home and protect the people in the home from the angel of death as he abarred, passed through Egypt. 
And so what God, we saw there was God was making a threshold covenant with the people of Israel. He was entering into that covenant with them to protect them and to provide for them. Um, and so we saw the power of covenant, the significance of that. And then last week, we finally got into to, to Genesis chapter 15. And we, we saw there that God made Abraham a promise, right? He promised him that he would have a descendant, a seat of his own, because that was Abraham. He was upset. He was frustrated. He had no kids at this point in his life. And God says, I promised you to have a descendant, seed, singular, that will lead to more descendants than you can count. And he took him outside in the night sky and clear night. And he said, go ahead, count the stars if you can. The number of your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And the response we saw was significant because it's, it's one of the, the, the most important verses of the Bible. What was Abraham's response to it? He believed. He oriented his life around it. He accepted it as truth. He said, amen, he believed. And God, as a result, credited or reckoned him righteous, that he was now okay and accepted. We saw how important of a verse that was because it was the first time that belief and righteousness were used together. But that belief is what leads to God making us righteous, justifying us. But the reality is where we left off there in verse six is sort of mid-conversation. So we want to continue on the conversation. So if you want to turn in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse seven and eight, we're going to see that as the conversation continues. So verse seven, and he said to him, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. So he's reminding him about the call that he had when he was still in Mesopotamia. He says, I'm the God that called you out when you're in Mesopotamia to bring you into this land that I've promised you to give it to you. And Abram says in in verse eight, he says, oh Lord God, how may I that I know that I will possess it? Now what's interesting is what could God have said at this point? God could say, well, you got to trust me. And here's an opportunity, Abram, for you to exercise your trust and just wait and trust me for it. He could have said that. And it would have been well in his rights to say that, but he doesn't. Instead, what he does is he gives Abram some instructions. And to be honest, the instructions for you and I are are a little bit odd. They don't really make a lot of sense to us, but they would have made incredible significance or incredible sense to Abram. Let Let me read the instructions for us, beginning in verse nine. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. See what I mean by a bit of a strange command? Go get all these animals, cut them in half and, 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 and lay them opposite here. And to us, we don't, we don't really understand what he's doing. But for Abram, it would be kind of like, if you hear the wedding march song, you know exactly what that is. Or if you hear the song for the graduation, you know exactly what's happening, right? If, um, if, if you start, if you're in a restaurant and you see the, the wait staff come out clapping and singing, what, yeah, you're just, yeah, Cheryl's not happy with that. So, but you're, you know, someone's got a birthday, right? No one has to tell you. We just know because those are the rituals within our society. 
Well, for Abram, this was a ritual that God was inviting Abram into. And Abram understood right away what God was asking of him was to form a covenant, to enter into a covenant with him. That essentially what, and this is the amazing part, God chose to bind himself to Abram and covenant. Think about that. Again, all he had to say was just, just trust me. I'm going to do it. That's it. Let my yes be yes, my no be no. You got to trust me on that. But he went further and he bound himself to a covenant, not for his sake, right? He didn't need a covenant to guarantee, to keep him in line, right? Like, well, I know if I got that covenant, I know I'm going to do it. It's like, I need that deadline to get the project done. So I'll give myself a deadline. I'll give myself a covenant. It wasn't for him. Who is the covenant for? It was for Abram. It was so that Abram could have that confidence, that knowing that God was going to come through with his promise. And so what he's doing here is it goes on to say he made a covenant with Abram, but the word there for made is literally cut. And that's often how they would refer to a covenant. You would cut a covenant because it would often involve blood, which would involve a cut. And so in this case here, he took these animals, the heifer and the goat and so forth, and they, he, Abram cut them in half and then put them opposite each other with a bloody path in between. Now that bloody path sometimes would be in a circle. Sometimes it would be in a figure eight because what's going to happen now is you're going to walk that bloody path and the circle or the figure eight is a sign that this is a covenant that never ends. It's an everlasting covenant. Now, I don't know if it was a straight line for Abram or, or a circle or a figure eight, but that's what God was saying. Let's enter into a covenant. And often what would happen is these, these dead animals there that were sacrificed were to be a reminder, were to be a curse. That if you ever break the covenant, you're saying, let my life be like these animals. Let my life be forfeited. That's what they were doing here. And so then what you, so what you would do as covenant partners, you would walk the path together on this path. And, and that's the significance here. But here's where the story gets really interesting. Because Abram does all that, right? He takes the animals, just as God commanded him. He cuts them in two, creates the path that's all bloody and everything. He's ready and he's waiting and he's waiting. And then suddenly a great terror comes upon him. Read with me in the beginning of verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you should go to your fathers in peace and you'll be buried in a good old age. I mean, he's, he's telling the story of Israel that's going to happen, right? That they're going to go to Egypt and they're going to be enslaved in Egypt. And they're going to they're gonna eventually come out of Egypt and they're going to walk out with many possessions. That's the story of Exodus. But for you, Abram, he says, you will die a happy man at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, there will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So he's, he's speaking to Abraham, although he's asleep, and he's letting him know what the future holds. Then in verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed 
between these pieces. Here's what's significant. When it came time to, to say the I do, when it came time to walk the covenant path and enter into covenant with one another, God puts Abram to sleep. And then a burning oven and a flaming torch show. Now, what does that represent? Well, here's my opinion and backed up with some other commentators is the flaming oven is, is essentially the all-consuming fire that is God's love, the Father. And the torch is the light of the world. Who's that? Jesus. So Father and Son show up. Father and Son walk the path. Father and Son swear the oath. Meaning, who are the responsibilities on? Father and Son. They're not on Abram. He's not requiring anything of Abram to fulfill the covenant. Father and son are going to do it. And the weight and the responsibility is on those two. And that, that's what's so amazing here. That, that God's not asking Abram to accomplish it. But Abram's going to be the benefactor of it. But God's going to do both sides of the covenant. All he's asking then of Abram is this loyalty, this faith, this trust, in him. And what's amazing here is as a result of this, this act, this single act of covenant, Abram's called a friend of God. Now, remember what I said about this book, it's a covenant document and it's got certain words that, that are referring to covenants. Well, this phrase, Abram is a friend of God, is, is a pointer towards this covenant. You see, when you entered into a blood covenant with someone, you were now covenant friends with them. That's how they would often term it. Sometimes it's just referred to as friendship covenant. And so when Abram is being called a friend of God, God's reminding us, that's the man I'm in covenant with. That's the man I've, I've bound myself to. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe would choose to bind himself to Abram. Remember when we talked about covenants, we talked about this Susie Rain and Vassal covenants. Anyone, you all remember that, right? Susie Rain, you looked it up, wrote a paper on it. No, all right. So that's the kind of covenant when someone much greater makes a covenant with someone much lower. See, typically tribe A, tribe B, they both have something that the other wants. So it's a mutual trade. And it's a, it's a, it's a win-win scenario, but every so often you would have someone who is so much greater and someone who is so much lower where they would enter into a covenant. Now, when that typically happened, all the weight and responsibility was on the lower. I mean, the very fact that the, the great one would even be willing to enter into covenant would be almost unthinkable, but then they would acquire a lot from the lower, but not here. Here we have the ultimate ruler, God himself, and Abram, way down here, mankind. And God says, let's enter into covenant, but I will take on the responsibilities. I will take on the demands onto myself. And from now on, wherever you go, let it be known that you're my friend. You're a friend to me. When you think about your friends, 
A lot of you will get together with friends tonight to, to ring out the old and ring in the new year because you choose those people. You want to be with those people. And that's God with Abram. He wants to be with him. Well, what does this have to do with us today? And the answer is everything. You see, this, this, this story, this picture here, this account is recounted for us many times in the New Testament to show us that this covenant that God made with Abram is actually the new covenant that you and I have today with God. You see, the Abrahamic covenant is the new covenant, even though it precedes the old covenant. I know, a little bit confusing, but bear with me on this one. Turn to Galatians chapter three. Let's read verses 15 to 18. So here's, here's Paul, and he's, and he's speaking to a, the churches of Galatia that are very much returning to the law, returning to the old covenant, returning to the Mosaic system. It was this idea that you get saved by faith, you get saved by grace, that Jesus did the work, but now that you're saved, well, now you got to follow the law. Because the law is now the guidebook, the instructions, and this is what you need to follow. And it's a blending of the old and the new. So Paul writes them, verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it's only a man's covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Think about it. When, when someone makes a covenant or, or even signs a contract with people, you, you enter into that contract, you enter that agreement, you don't change it after the fact. Let's suppose Tim, as a realtor, he, he helps a, a couple sell the house to another family and everything goes through, everything's wonderful, and they sign the papers and the money changes hands. And then the couple selling the home comes back afterwards to the new couple and says, listen, I know it's yours, but I think we want to keep the garage. So we're going to do that. We're just going to keep the garage because we've got way more stuff than we thought. And that's just what we're going to do. What would happen? Could they do that? Can they just change the nature of the, of the contract or the covenant after the fact? You can't do that. The moment that covenant, that contract's been ratified, you can't go back and change it. That's the illustration that Paul's using here. So now he's going to apply that for us in verse 16. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed, singular. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. So he was the, in Genesis 15, we're seeing this promise of Jesus Christ, the gospel. That's the new covenant that was promised to Abraham. And then verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later. That, that's referring to Moses on Mount Sinai. 430 years after Moses or after Abram has that meeting with God in Genesis 15, Moses shows up and receives the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. But it doesn't change the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? The Abrahamic covenant is still intact. So what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise for if the inheritance 
is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. Every time you see that word promise in this, this passage, it's talking about covenants. So if the inheritance, if the reward, if it came through the law, if it came through your efforts, then it's not based on the promise, not based on the covenant that God made with Abram. But God has granted it to Abram by means of a promise, by means of a covenant. Why is this significant? Well, it tells us that the new covenant that you and I have the, the blessing of being under today was always God's plan. It wasn't, it wasn't that God said, well, let's, let's start out. Let's, let's, let's do this Abrahamic thing. That's not working. These, these people are rebellious, golden calf. Let's give them the law. Maybe that's what's going to rescue them. Boy, they blew that. That's not working. What are we going to do? I know. Let's try this new covenant. That wasn't the plan. It wasn't this order of sequence. It was always going to be the new covenant. That was always the plan. And so therefore this new covenant is greater than and supersedes the old. And it's a new covenant that is not based on works. It's based on this promise that is we enter in by faith. Let's look at another, another passage. Go to Romans chapter four, where, where Paul again is going to reference this. And so in Romans chapter three, Paul's been laying the case while, while we're, all, we're all in a mess. We're all in trouble. There are none who are righteous. And he goes on to talk about the, the darkness, the despair of all of mankind because of Adam's sin. And that no one will be justified by their works. No one can be saved on their own merit. Verse 23 of chapter three, let's start there. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Verse 24, by being justified as a gift of his grace through redemption, which is Christ Jesus. So it's not going to be by, based on our works, but based on what Christ has done. So now jump down to chapter four, verse one. What shall we say that, or what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he was doing something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, this wage is not credited, but as a favor, but what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, what's significant here is, is Abram is before the law. In fact, Genesis 15 is even before Abram gets circumcised. There's no work that you could attach to Abram's actions to justify him because there's no law. There's no standard. It was simply, he believed. He said, amen. I trust that. And as a result, God credits, God reckons him righteous. That's the order. That's the sequence here. And so that's the beauty of God's grace, that it's not about what we do. It's about what he's done. And will we say amen? Will we have faith in that? I don't know how to, how to properly convey to all of us the significance of this. Because God's rightness, his righteousness, his approval. Remember, we saw that word righteousness in the Old Testament. Zadaka could mean to be put in right order. What it, what it means is that 
It is what destroys shame. It utterly destroys shame. There's no room for shame when you have God's righteousness. See, growing up, I I always felt like I had something to prove. I, I, I wasn't the smartest kid in school. I wasn't the... Uh, the strongest or the fastest. I certainly wasn't the most popular. If, if anything, I was the shortest. That was the only thing I had going for me, which wasn't great, let me tell you. And, and so I struggled with so much inadequacy that I spent my whole life trying to prove something. I'm going to work harder than everyone else. I'm going to play harder than everyone else. I'm going to find something that I could be good at. And I found something I was pretty good at, being a goalie playing road hockey. I didn't, didn't start playing ice hockey till I was in university, and, but I was playing road hockey every day. And I, I found I, was, I could do pretty good. I was a little guy, but I was quick. I was athletic and I was willing to just do whatever it took to throw my face in front of a ball. That explains a lot now, right? But, but so I, I was willing to do that. The problem was, if you ever scored on me, it was very personal because I failed and I would get so angry. I would turn around and I'd take my goal stick and I'd smash the top of the crossbar. And over time, that crossbar began to make a U, which in hindsight, you know, makes the net a little bit smaller. So that's not bad. But what I would do every so often, I would flip the crossbar and I'd bang it back into shape. But every goal was a personal failure. Another reminder, not good enough. They beat you. They're better than you. You let everyone down. You're a failure. It was personal. And I struggled with that. Because the problem was, the moment they scored on me, I couldn't take it back. I couldn't undo it. These guys were counting on me and I blew it. And shame would just attack and attack, attack. And then, then one day I began to learn about God's righteousness, his acceptance, his approval that isn't based on how hard I work, isn't based on what I know, my successes or my failures. It's entirely based on what Jesus did on the cross and he gifts it to me. He says, my righteousness, Jesus says to me, is now yours. Just take it. It's a gift. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Not the point, but it could be yours. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I, I'm okay. Well, do you think that meant I just got lazy? Stop trying. No, not at all. I remember when I, when I started playing hockey the, the next time, I remember thinking while I was, you know, before the game started, I'm standing in the crease and thinking, you know, Lord, I'm righteous in you. And it doesn't matter if I give up one goal, two goals, five goals, 10 goals, I'm still going to be righteous. Please don't let it be 10, God. I don't need the illustration. I'm good, but, but I'm okay. And I remember thinking after they, they had score on me, I'd say to myself, at least I'm still righteous. They can't take that away from me. And it's hard for shame to exist where that righteousness is present, where the knowledge of that righteousness is present. And so it's okay to fail. It was okay to be me. Again, I still tried. I still did my best, but I didn't have anything riding on my success anymore. 
because I was okay. I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm righteous and holy. In fact, it's ultimately that truth that led me here because I was so amazed what God had done for me, I wanted to share with other people. And I remember thinking, God, what if I fail? What if I get up here and I make a mistake or I'm a fool or they don't don't like what I have to say? What will happen if I fail? And God said, it's not an if, it's a when. Not helping God. But he says, are you still righteous? Are you still loved? The answer is, I, I am. Because it's not about me anymore. I have nothing riding on this performance. I'm good. I'm okay. I'm loved. And life got real simple. I was, when I was preparing this week, there was a moment, Caleb and I were sitting across from each other and I'm on my computer and I'm typing away. And he says to me, you know, daddy, what if you just told everyone that Jesus loves them? That's it. That's simple. Jesus loves you. All you need to do is accept it, receive it. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't have to walk through, you know, burning coals or, or, you know, serve or minister or give or any of that stuff. You're loved. Even Jeremy, who steals 10% from the church, is loved. I... I think you got the tithe backwards, Jer. I'm just, um, just saying. So, so again, I said this, this covenant, this Abrahamic covenant is a new covenant, but what's confusing is we have the old covenant. So the new covenant is older than the old covenant, but we call it, like, it gets confusing, right? So why is that? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine, beginning of verse 15. This is a a fantastic book. The whole theme of the book is how Jesus is better. So so live by faith, trust him by faith. And so he says here in verse 15, for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who've been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is he saying here? Well, the idea here is that Jesus becomes the mediator. Remember that God, the father and Jesus walked this path together. Jesus is going to be our representative. He's going to be much like Moses was a representative of Israel. Jesus is going to be our representative. And he's going to enter into this covenant for us in order that we might receive an internal inheritance. Verse 16, for where a covenant is, there must also be the necessity uh, by the debt, be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant, now some of you have a will or a testament in your translations, but for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Again, some of your translations may say will there, because that's the idea that they're thinking of. You know, for example, you know, the inheritance that my parents are going to leave me and not my brothers. Again, I, I don't understand why, but thank you, mom and dad. I, I appreciate that. So the inheritance they leave to me, I don't get until they pass away. That's what is required. 
But the moment they pass away, the inheritance kicks in. That's this idea here. Well, what that means for us is God made the covenant with Abram in Genesis 15, but it didn't kick in until when? Until the cross. And the cross is the dividing line of history. For you who have a paper Bible still, well done. Good for you. I like that. But, but when you turn to Matthew 1.1 1, 1, and you go back a page, what does it often say? New Testament. And we think that New Testament begins in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. It doesn't. Yes, your Bible has an error. Right? It doesn't begin in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. It began on the cross. It began when Jesus died. When Jesus died, that Abrahamic covenant, that new covenant comes into effect, comes into force, thereby negating the old. The old is obsolete. That's what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say. It's been replaced with a new to us covenant, but older because it's the Abrahamic covenant. And therefore we've become inheritors of that. We're inheriting from him. Remember what we said about that word inherit? Like the Hebrew word for inherit is literally to possess. You're a possessor, but more specifically, the context is often used. You're possessing something that is not yours. So they would use that word talking about a thief who's come and he's stolen something because he's possessing, he's holding on to something not his. We said, that's a great word for inheritance because you don't actually work for or earn the inheritance you receive. Someone else has done all that. Someone else has done all that work for you and now they're leaving it to you and you possess that which you did not earn. Isn't that a great word? Because you and I are inheriting from God. We're sharing in something that we did not earn, we didn't work for, but we now possess. We now own. And so we're benefactors of what Christ has done. In fact, everything we have today, we have because of this new covenant. So let me read to you a list of things that we have. We've inherited. We are now possessors of God's righteousness. That's your righteousness. And please understand, it's not, it's not accredited righteousness like Abram had. See, Abram could only be credited because the cross had not yet happened. But for you and I, the cross is in our past. It's already happened. And so we've been made righteous. From your very fiber of your being, Romans 5.19, you've been made justified. You've been made righteous. We've inherited, we're possessors of his holiness. We've inherited and we're possessors of his worth. That's a good word for many of you here. We're struggling with your self-worth looking at your past, looking at what you've done, looking at your failures, looking where you, you didn't quite measure up. God says, my worth is your worth. How do we know that? Because the price he paid for you was himself. We've inherited, we're possessors of the Holy Spirit. God himself has taken up permanent dwelling place in your spirit to the point where you become one spirit with him. Here's the amazing thing. God says, that's just the beginning. That's the first fruits. There's more to come. 
I would have been happy with that. But God says there's more. But because we have this Holy Spirit, we've now inherited and we're possessors of his grace and his power, of his very life inside of us now, which means now that we've, we are inherited and we possess his love for other people. We've inherited and we possess his joy. Not a joy based on circumstances and what's going on and how people are treating you and whether you're a successor or whether you're failing or whether your team's doing well or not doing well. That's, the, that's not where it comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit and we possess that joy. We've inherited and we possess his peace. A peace that is beyond this world. A peace that is beyond circumstances. We've inherited and we possess his, his patience. We've inherited and we possess his goodness. We've inherited and we possess his kindness. We've inherited and we possess his faithfulness and his gentleness and his self-control. It's the fruit of the spirit. That is yours today. That's your inheritance. That's why Peter writes in, in 2 Peter 1 that you have everything you need for life and godliness because you are partakers of the divine nature. It's ours by covenant. By covenant, a covenant that God made with Jesus, meaning it's on God and Jesus to fulfill. Do you think Jesus is going to let you down? No. All that's required is for us to trust it, to believe it. See, if someone puts, puts money in your bank account, it's there, it's your money. You possess it. You've inherited even because you didn't earn it. They put it in there for you. The question is, will you use it? Will you trust that that money there is yours to use and go and buy the things you need? Or will you go off begging? And that's what God's given to us. He's given us the most rock solid guarantee. He says, I will put myself under a covenant promising you that I'll provide to you, that you will be inheritors and receive my life. Will you say amen? Will you orient your life around that is what he's saying? So much more for us to unpack and we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. We're going to look at what this covenant is not saying as well as what it is saying in more detail. But this morning, I want you to know you're okay. That you've been ordered. You've been made right. You've been justified. That because you've entered in by faith, like Abram, you're God's friend, Norm. The problem is we forget this, don't we? If only we had something that we could institute that might help us remind us of this covenant. Oh, wait, we do have something. So I'm going to invite the, the worship team back up here. We're going to celebrate communion. And, and communion is this reminder for us of what God's done. I'm going to get Greg to come up here as well to, to celebrate communion with me. But I want to read to you out of, um, out of Luke chapter 22. This is the night of Jesus's arrest. It's the Passover. Can't you see that God has a flair for the dramatic? I mean, the Passover meal is literally called the Pesach meal. This, this crossing over a threshold. 
And they're doing this as a celebration of God's covenant, how he entered into their abode to protect them from the destroyer. And as he's celebrating this, he's, he says to them in verse 14, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, oh, I love this. Don't miss this. This is good. Jesus says to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've been looking forward to this moment, he says. I've been excited and waiting, looking forward, Paul, to, to share this moment with you. For I say to you, I shall never eat again of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given from me or given for you and to do this in remembrance of me. We're to take the bread as a reminder of the sacrifice that God did. His body broke on that cross, the death that he suffered, the abuse so that we could go free that we would be free of all this. Verse 20, and in the same way he took the cup after they'd eaten saying, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Remember what we said about, about that threshold covenant that whatever you had sacrificed bestowed meaning. That, that one man, he killed this very expensive racehorse, this stallion to show the value that he was bestowing on his guests. Whereas if you just found like a, you know, a little rodent and sacrifice that, then you don't, you don't mean a whole lot for that person. But Jesus says the blood that we're going to use to enter in this covenant is my blood. The son of God himself. That's how significant you and I are to our heavenly father. This blood is what we're going to use to enter into covenant with one another. And God says, I'll do it. The work is on me. All I ask is for you to trust me. That's it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we stand in awe of who you are and what you've done. You've made us right. And you entered into a covenant with Abram where you do all the work. And we get to be children of Abraham, as we enter him by faith. And we've done that for salvation, but Lord, may we do it on and on and on now as we take hold of the inheritance, as we possess what you've given to us. It's incredible life in you. And so as we celebrate communion as a reminder of what you've already done, may we not look at our failures, our past, our sin, Others sin against us and what we've done. May we celebrate your life, your grace, your power, your sacrifice, and your resurrection is now alive in us today. In your name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the New Life Fellowship podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more great content, please be sure to check out our website, newlifekw.ca, and sign up for our mailing list. Subscribers will receive our The Life in the Apartment ebook that is sure to encourage and bless. 
Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to watch the latest services and additional video content. New Life Fellowship is a registered charity that is supported by the giving of partners and friends. All donations will be received. If you would like to donate, donate at newlifekw.ca. Your giving is highly valued and appreciated. You are loved. Take care.